Hey, welcome to the Caleb Mason podcast today. I'm super excited that you decided to spend some of your time here with me. And on this podcast, we want to help you grow personally and professionally on the journey that you're on. And we have a great guest today in Kristen Ivey, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But before we do that, I wanted to let you know that the music that you're listening to is provided to you by my good friend, Sam Massey. And uh, if you would like any of this music as well for any podcast or for, if you happen to run a podcast, if you happen to have a business or need any audio or video work, Sam is the person for you to go to all of that great stuff for. And so feel free to hit him up as well. Um, but as I mentioned earlier today, we're talking with Chris and Ivy and this conversation was actually recorded um, about halfway through uh, 2019. And uh, it's a really great conversation to get into her um, about some of the uh, about some stuff that she had been thinking about recently, and get into um, a book that she's uh, written recently as well. If you're not familiar with Kristen, Kristen is the executive director of messaging at Orange, or also known as the Three Thing Group, and she is the co-founder and director of the Phase project and so she's been with orange for a little while which is um which is a, a curriculum company uh specifically kind of in the church world to where they talk about the development of elementary middle school and um and high school curriculums for for different churches as well but we really have a great conversation and i'm super excited to bring in that conversation right now Kristen, we are so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Caleb, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And just as we get started, um, one of the places that I wanted to start was actually with, uh, with your Instagram feed. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I follow you on Instagram and you uh, over the past few months and past few weeks have just been making like some really thought-provoking um, that have just really made me think and stop and consider. And it's really about, um, at least for me, it kind of ties into a, what uh, your, the book that you co-authored with Reggie and with Virginia, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but one of the things that you write about is how, um, is how our culture has, has turned very, very divisive. And mm. um, some of that is because of politics. And I don't think it really matters what side of the what side right. you fall in, it's, it just happens to be that way. And it's kind of led to a culture of just outrage. Mm. What, like, what inspired those posts? And <laughs> yeah, let's just start there. What, like, what has inspired, like, you just choosing, hey, I need, I need to dive into the conversation at this point. Goodness, part of that is I, I do try to filter, um, what I say to a degree. Um, but I like most of us, if you're on any social media platform, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, if you're basically anywhere, I don't think you can avoid seeing outraged posts in the last couple of years. There's just a lot of passion. Um, and I'm an individual who lives life with a lot of passion. Everybody who works with me would know that. I mean, I have this disease of caring too much. I overly care about every Everything. I mean, I got to try to train myself to kind of dial it back. But when I see some of the posts that are out there, they feel so divisive. It feels as if we've forgotten the humanity that's behind most of the causes that we're passionate about. And when you remember that there's someone human on the other side of that that might disagree with you, it just changes the tone and the position in which I think we have a conversation online with people that we're not in front of face to face. Uh, and so, you know, over the last few years, I just tried to run some things through grids to go, if there's something somebody posts or there's a cause I don't understand, instead of saying with outrage, you know, I don't understand how anybody could you know, fill in the blank, mm -hmm. that that really does need to be something we turn back around on ourselves to go, okay, so if you don't understand 
then ask yourself, what is it that I don't understand? What smart person who I respect holds that point of view that could explain something to me maybe that I need to learn that I don't, I don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Say more about what that, what that process kind of looks like for you whenever it comes to like something that either, you know, goes against what you like the, the, the view that you hold. Sure. Well, I think there's a natural tendency to surround ourselves with people who think like we think or believe like we believe. And we drift that way without intending to or meaning to. We follow people online who are like-minded. Maybe we like their sense of fashion or sense of style, or they read the kind of books that we like to read. And so we follow them. And by the very nature of following them, they'll begin to repeat back to us the same things we already intrinsically believe. And we develop this kind of echo chamber where we're constantly in contact with people who reinforce what we already believe. And that's just the drift. I think we have to be intentional and maybe more so than ever before to go outside of that line of thinking, go find somebody who disagrees with you fundamentally on some key issues and be friends, right? It's just really that simple. So you could text them and say, Hey, I don't understand this. You know, this seems crazy to me, this thing I'm hearing on the news or this thing that happened, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hearing this, it doesn't make sense. And then let them tell you when it's somebody you respect and it's somebody you know and you know their life story and you know they're not a crazy person, it reframes and it gives you information you might not otherwise get. Mm-hmm. So who, who might be some of those people for you that you've, you've got, their, their perspective is different than mine and I'm intentionally seeking them out? Well, I mean, it's, it's usually somebody who's different than you. So I am married. And I have three biological kids. So one thing that's true, and I'm a woman and I'm white and uh, my parents are divorced. So I go through my story and those are the things that have informed my natural perspective and things that I get really passionate about. But I can go find friends who, and I was raised in Georgia and Texas, so primarily the Bible Belt. It means that I have to have people maybe who I can call who live in Washington, D.C. in a different political climate. I need to have people who are uh, friends of mine that I reach out to regularly who are single, uh, intentionally single, uh, divorced, have adopted children who are uh, black or Asian or of another ethnicity than my, you know, my family it's any number of things. I, for honestly, in a lot of gender conversations lately, uh, I'm kind of pushing 40. So I'm getting more and more and more passionate about some of the things that I was passionate about at a younger age too. But one of those would be some gender issues. And I need to have male friends that I can dialogue with as some of the gender conversations get more and more heated. Mm-hmm. What, like, is there anything intentional that you've done to t- to, to create that, that safe environment, because whenever you're talking about those things, Mm. like, I mean, sometimes it can get, it can get passionate, (laughs) it can get heated, not because you're angry, just because you're passionate. And so what, what have you learned about having good dialogue about those types of conversations? (laughs) Yeah, I make a lot of mistakes. That's what I've learned. I've learned that uh, I am quick to overassume. I mean, this is just me personally, so this is counseling session now, but I'm I'm quick to overassume permission in conversations. And so I'll jump right in assuming it's a safe place. But I I think um, we have to approach hard conversations with extra sensitivity toward each other. Because there have been multiple times to, that I'm in a conversation about an issue and you disagree and I'm asking a question and my question feels like it's a threatening question, but it's not intended that way. And so we have to create relationships that are very safe places. I think especially in a world where sometimes online conversation isn't safe, we more than ever need some safe places offline. Um, and, and I say offline, I really mean sometimes it's on text or on a, you know Instagram message, or, but it's a direct point of contact with someone you know that says, okay, we're safe. I, I am, I'm safe enough, right, to ask this question and you to give me an answer, even if it's the one I don't want to hear, and for us to wrestle with this so that we can actually process um, truly what we really believe and why we believe it and how we can learn from each other. Mm-hmm. How have you learned to navigate the, this is, a, this is a safe place that I can go amongst a group of people, and this isn't a safe place? Because I think that's something that I find myself struggling with 
is I care mm -hmm. so much about the issue, especially whenever it comes to like the the marginalized or, or mm -hmm. anyone who is not like yeah. the default normal or the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And I could get mm -hmm. really heated and passionate yeah. about it. And I, what you were saying, I don't want to pose the question in a threatening way. I'm just like, let's get the dialogue started so that we can move forward and help people. Gosh, there's so many layers and I'm probably going to say something here. <laughs> I, I will, I think in this whole conversation, I even go, goodness, I'm going to say that. Is that okay? One thing I've learned is to enter into a lot of conversations with tremendous humility and a genuine way to go, you're probably wrong about something and you don't even know it. I like to say, I am confidently wrong all the time. I mean, I go in, I'm for sure, I know what I'm going to be right about. So we just have to enter the conversations with tremendous humility and give it grace and say, okay, I'm here to learn. Uh, I want you to teach me. I want, to, I want you to show me where I'm wrong. Then when things get heated and we start pushing at each other and questions start flying and whatever, that'll happen. And then on the back end to come back and say, okay, I know that I was pushing and I was challenging. That's part of how I learn but just know I care about you and you're right about a lot of things and I'm trying to learn where I'm wrong and, and need for you to help me see where I'm wrong. And just sort of, I think, capping some of those conversations with each other with humility is important. And there are dynamics at play where um, sociologists would always say that the person who has less power has always a higher cultural awareness than the person who has power because we're just genetically programmed for survival right? So that if you have less power, you're always learning everything you can about the person who has more power. That is true for kids. Um, kids are constantly, they know so much more about their parents or adult leaders or teachers than their adult leaders, parents, and teachers know about them because they study us. They need to know how to manipulate us to get what they need in life. And that's just how they're wired. The same is true when we get into a lot of, um, like you mentioned, dominant culture conversations around culture there are, there's a history, right, that would inform some of that. So, um, and I'll go out on a limb here, and this is probably risky to say, and, but this is my perspective. And if you're listening to the podcast and I'm wrong about this, tell me that I'm wrong about it because I need to learn. But I think women tend to understand more about men than men have had to understand about women, given some history. I think there are black leaders that know more about white culture than white leaders know about either white or black culture. And I think in some of those conversations, we have to enter in and go, okay, I, because of who I am, and I'm not changing who I am, have something to learn from someone else and, and to go in kind of with our eyes open to that. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned humility, and I, I agree that's a key part of it. What has helped you develop that level of humility or even empathy to go, I need, I need to learn from someone else. I, I mean, honestly, I have been wrong so much. <laughs> I think just looking back across my life, I think every day, all of us need to do a little self-reflection and go, man, I started today really believing this. I learned today that I was wrong about it. <laughs> and if you're, if you're a self-reflecting individual, you won't, you won't go very long without realizing you're wrong about a lot of things. And you you know, it's not a fake humility. It's genuine that we go, goodness, we're just all learning and we're trying to learn what we can along the way. Uh, and we just have to be honest about that. Mm -hmm. So switching gears a little bit, one thing I want to talk with you about is um, creating effective messaging. And whenever it comes to communication, because I know that's part of your role at, uh, at the Rethink Group as well. Um, and that's just something personally that I care about because of communication as well and learning to be a more effective communicator and getting the message across. What have you, what have you learned are some keys to creating that, tech, that effective type of messaging that really sticks and resonates with people? Um, mostly, I feel like I'm learning that you have to over-clarify and you have to over-communicate. You have to say what you think you said, you probably didn't say it the first time and it probably wasn't heard the third time. And so it, it's just, there's layers and layers to communication. I feel like assumptions are poison. Uh, I make this mistake all the time where I just, I assume, I assume we're on the same page or I assume we've communicated. I assume that when we talked, we both walked away with the same understanding. And that's so very seldom the case that we just have to continually be communicating and clarifying and um, figuring out there. 
that clarity is just progressive layers of clarity. We're digging in a little further and a little further and a little further. And everybody in every organization or every family or no matter what job or role you have, you are a communicator. And your job is, I mean, directly connected to your ability to clearly communicate your understanding of, you know, whatever it is that you're working on right now, whatever project you're in. Mm -hmm. So what does that look like whenever it comes to an organization wanting to communicate a message, you know, maybe for Orange or Rethink, it's something like the phase project. And then what does that look like in like a, like giving like an actual message from a stage as, as well? Like what does, what does the clarifying process, what does the over communicating process look like in, in both of those scenarios? <laughs> I think it's easier to craft a message from the stage than it is to work on communication within an organization. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, I, okay. I have Go. two sides of that. In it. So, <laughs> but from yeah. the, why, yeah. Why, why do you think that is? <laughs> in a message, one person is talking. <laughs> and at the end of it, everybody who listened to you doesn't tell you what they thought they heard. In an organization, you're going to find out if they heard what you thought they heard. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, you get to deliver the message and you walk out of stage and like, I mean, mic drop, you're done. And like, you just assume they all heard exactly what you meant. Um, but in an organization, you'll get that feedback loop of, oh, you weren't clear enough. Oh, you didn't craft that well enough. Oh, we all understood that in different ways. And um, so I guess, I guess communication is multifaceted depending on what you're talking about. But mm -hmm. I do think there's a collaborative nature to communication if you really want to craft anything that's worth uh, communicating. Multiple perspectives are important. And you can't, you really can't undervalue that because you'll say it one way and then when you say it in a room and you get feedback, it shapes how to say it better. So, I mean, a lot of the messages that we communicate at Orange Conference or from the stage or in our curriculum, they've been vetted in a room of people where, um, you know, the sentences are written and then we lob them out into a room, see how everybody responds, the ideas that everybody else has, and it helps you kind of go, okay, that wasn't heard exactly the same way, but that's also a great idea. And you just kind of get something out of collaboration you would never get on your own. Mm -hmm. So talk about like, how deep does that go in the organization and even involving people? Like how many people would be involved in something like that? <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, it depends. Our curriculum, I honestly cannot even begin to count. Um, if I were thinking through layers of some of our children's curriculum that probably passes through the hands of 20 people at least before it gets to the finish line, just from a messaging standpoint, that's not talking about arranging a comma here or placing it on the page. But um, when it gets to messaging at conference, you know, it's probably a, a little bit smaller. It just depends on the topic or the message at hand. Um, we like to work with creative boards. So we'll have an idea in the room and then we bring a group of individuals together. Everybody's kind of brainstorming, you know, blue sky, brain dump of all the ideas on the board. Then it's fun to switch it up and bring in a different group of individuals and see where some of the themes, you know, resonate and rise back to the surface again. Um, and we'll push and pull at a theme all year long. We're already working on next year's theme. So mm -hmm. it is fun to have those conversations in a room and go, okay, what do you think about it? What do you think about it? What do you think about it? And watch as the idea just kind of bubbles through those conversations for, a, it kind of simmers. I would like mm -hmm. to say, you know, when you let it simmer for a long, long time, then you can go fast on the back end um, because you've been sitting with it. Mm -hmm. So like talk about, I mean, if you've talked about it a little bit, but say more about the benefit of involving so many people, because I can hear someone who's listening to this and just go, that is going to take so much time. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have the luxury of that's what we do. Um, and it's honestly what drives us. So uh, I work for a nonprofit organization whose mission is to help kids and teenagers have a better faith and future. And we believe that the local church is the solution for that. And so every single one of our staff is driven by this nonprofit mission mindset to say, we want the local church to win. And we fundamentally believe that we can do what we do so that a church leader doesn't have to go through all of those layers to get to a message and can focus on the number one thing that actually changes the life of a kid or teenager. And 
as much time as I spend on messaging from where I sit in our organization, I don't actually think that the message is what changes a person. The message will, I don't think that the message is what changes a person's life. What changes a person's life is a person. And that's going to come through the local church in a relational fashion. There's a relationship that's being groomed, you know, in the local community. And that's what will be the life change. And so our mission is consistently to go, how do we get the very best message out there so that a church can focus on building relationships that are going to do the life change? Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit more about that, why we do tend to focus on the message or this is the lesson that I need to teach or help people learn versus like the, well, I'm just going to sit, I'm going to sit here with this person and the dialogue is sometimes productive and sometimes it's not productive. It's a lot of times not productive. I've been a small group leader for years with middle school and high school girls. And I mean, there's just days you walk out, you're like, we didn't talk about anything meaningful or substantial at all. I don't think they heard anything that was said from the stage or one question that I tried to ask, you know, and it just feels like it was derailed. Um, but before I was a small group leader, I was also a teacher. And the same thing can feel true in the classroom sometimes. You're like, did that lesson get through at all? We just tend to, I think we undervalue what showing up consistently in a person's life actually communicates. And it's just the sheer fact that you're in the room with them and face-to-face -face with them and investing in them personally to care about their interests. That is, you referenced earlier the book that we just wrote. The book we wrote was centered around this idea of being personal, that there is just no substitute for building relationships. It's hard work. It's slow. You can only do it for a few people at a time, not a big, massive following. Um, but that really is probably the most important thing we'll do with our lives. Mm -hmm. Back to kind of the messaging and things like that. Whenever, whatever it be other organizations or even people, what do you see that maybe people tend to overlook as a concerns creating great messaging? I think we overemphasize a lot of times what's true and underemphasize um, the audience that we're speaking to. If, that would be the number one thing that I think we look at, especially in church world. Um, I have an, a master's of divinity and going through my master's of divinity process, I was trained in Greek. I was trained in Hebrew. I was trained in old Testament, new Testament. I mean, you know, the book of Ezekiel, I took a class just on the book of Ezekiel, right? So theology, 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 Bible, 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 so that I could really responsibly try to understand what the biblical text is teaching what we believe is true about God and about what Jesus came to do. And all of that matters so much, but we're programmed to focus on that. Sometimes at the expense of really doing our homework to understand the audience that we're talking to, to understand the changing socioeconomic demographic components of who's sitting in front of you when you speak, because it matters just as much who you're talking to and their personal context and how they're going to hear what you say as whether or not what you say is the best, you know, most accurate biblical reflection of the context, you know, of the text. Mm -hmm. Why do you think we tend to focus on what's true instead of the audience that we're communicating to? I don't know. That's, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I, we like to make assumptions. I do this all the time. Um, and I think it's written about somewhere in psychology we're really good at projecting. We assume that everybody experiences life the way we experience it or thinks about life the way we think about it or hears a song the way we hear it. And so a lot of times I think we make the mistake of assuming we're speaking to a room full of us and that we're looking out at a bunch of faces that are really our face looking back at us and they're translating exactly the way we would hear it and we just forget. And it's just, it's oversight. I, I mean, I do this all the time where people will um, call attention to something. And when all of a sudden you hear it in context, it changes everything. If you've ever brought a friend to church who doesn't go to church, I think you know what this feels like. Because mm -hmm. all of a sudden you run that message through this entirely different filter and you go, wait, that word is weird. Oh, that phrase is strange. Or, oh, my neighbor would have no idea what you mean by that. Because you hear it in a different way when you're sitting across from a person you know than you would when they're when that person's not in the room. Mm -hmm. What helps you manage that tension between because you do have to communicate what's true, but not at the expense of the audience? How do you handle that? 
I mean, I don't think we really have to compromise what's true. We just have to think about how we're saying what's true. I mean, there, there are ways to, to be kind and to be relevant and to be intentional and connect the dots. It just is, you, you know, I mean, you speak to a two-year-old differently than you speak to a 16-year-old. You do that really without thinking about it. Um, it just takes a layer of intentionality sometimes to think about different, different people's context. Mm -hmm. So I didn't include this on the questions, but as I was thinking about it, um, what would you say in your time at Orange has been, like, what have been some of the major lessons that you've learned while working at Orange and at Rethink Group and how that shaped you? I have learned so many lessons. <laughs> <laughs> I really have. I, that is, I have a note of, you know, there's notes on your phone. I use notes on my phone to just write down different thoughts. I have one that's just things I've learned from Reggie when I'm sitting mm -hmm. in a room and listening to him lead a meeting and going, I've never thought about that before. I'm going to take that down as a note. Um, notes that I've learned from encounters where I've gotten things completely wrong. And I'm like, I kind of want to remember to not do that ever again. And here's what I did wrong in this scenario. Um, so it's hard for me to even sum up a lot of those. Uh, orange, one, one thing that Orange really pushed me on this, I, I always say this, this is very true for ministry. When I came from an education background and I was, you know, 23 years old teaching high school and I knew exactly how parents of teenagers should parent their teenagers. Um, I say that with a, a lot of sarcasm when <laughs> it comes through. Um, I just think there was a tendency, especially in that field, to be pretty negative about parents of teenagers. And um, when I did interviews of educators, again, a few years back, especially high school teachers, there was a tendency to turn a little bit negative. Uh, sometimes that creeps into ministry and youth ministry as well. Um, why don't parents you know, fill in the blank with mm -hmm. whatever it is we think that a parent should be doing? One thing that has drastically changed, um, both by my working at Orange and when I became a parent, <laughs> had to raise my own kids uh, through some of these phases and stages of life, is just a lot more belief that parents are trying and wanting to get this right and doing the very best that they can and that our culture tends to be pretty negative about parents. When things go wrong, it's usually a parent's fault mm -hmm. and that... Um, that there's a lot of a lot more that we could do for a parent to help them raise the bar uh, instead of just a, a tremendous culture of parent shaming. Mm -hmm. What might be one thing that people can start doing mm, to help affect that yeah, change in a positive way? Yep. Yeah, believe the best, and I hate for it to be as impractical as a belief, but I really do think if you'll fundamentally just decide that every parent wants to be a good parent and every parent can do something more than they're currently doing, that it, that's what radically changed for me, uh, my entire perspective is, hey, just resist the urge to fall into the trap of, oh, I don't understand why parents don't, or I can't, I can't fathom why any parent would, or just uh, that we just have a natural tendency to judge. And instead, if you'll just flip that around and begin to believe the best and go, every parent's trying to do the best they can. I don't know their story. I don't know the odds they're up against. I don't know what they're wrestling with. Uh, there's so many people going through grief and crisis and trauma that we don't know uh, mm -hmm. what's going on in their world. And in the middle of grief and crisis and trauma, they're trying to raise a kid who's a moody adolescent. I mean, there's just so much that we don't know. And if we'll just lead with the fact that we believe Every parent wants to be a good parent. Every parent can do something more. It will radically change our tone, our approach, our ability to help somebody, our ability to learn what we need to learn. Um, so many things. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you talked about it a little bit, but what, what helped you make that shift in that mindset? Well, I think when I came into Orange, that was Orange's fundamental belief. I think that mm -hmm. that was what this organization stood for. And I was hired because I was a, English biology teachers. So I had a little bit of a writing bent and I came on staff to be the lead editor of a piece that was for families at the time. It was called Family Times. So I was creating a resource for parents and for families. So there just had to be, you know, this DNA of the organization that was there for 
believing the best about parents. And I think when I started to think that way, this is an interesting thing that happens. Most of the time, when you change your belief about something, you'll begin to see things in the world that reinforce that belief. So if you begin to believe that every parent wants to be a good parent, you'll all of a sudden start seeing evidence of parents who are trying to do the very best they can do. Mm -hmm. If you fundamentally believe that most parents are lazy and don't care and want to raise entitled kids, you'll see a lot of evidence of that around you as well. So making that shift will begin to kind of convince you, oh, there are people who are really trying. Mm-hmm. So uh, you kind of talked about it a little bit, but what are some, and this won't be a comprehensive list, so I'm going to let you off the hook. What are, what are some things that you've learned from Reggie while working with him? <laughs> oh, goodness. Again, not a um, comprehensive list. Take <laughs> <laughs> that pressure off right now. <laughs> you know, just, uh, he's probably the most generous person on the planet. Um, so there is just a, he exudes generosity to a, just a tremendous extent. Anybody who's ever worked with him would go, yeah, he's definitely reframed my view of generosity and what that looks like. And I think um, a graceful positioning, I think if there ever was a learner of somebody who at every single year of this organization, um, he is a leader who leads from a learning posture. So I've watched the way that he learns. Um, I've probably been a student of the way that he learns um, for you know, 12 years, 15 years. Um, of sitting at a table and and never felt like, oh, this is the CEO at a table who's here with authority to tell us all how it goes. But regardless of the table he's sitting at, um, and I say table because we had a lot of lunches and dinners and <laughs> actual tables, but regardless of where we are, um, he learns from everybody, everywhere. He learns from the waitress who's serving us. He learns from the cook and the chef. He learns from, literally, I mean, we, we have a restaurant we've gone to. He brings back uh, from them. He learned that their hostess, uh, their hosting staff for the restaurant had gone through a book together to learn how to do better customer service. And so he got in and started learning from them. I mean, there's a way in which he has also just shaped how, I view learning as this continual daily process. Every single person has something to teach you. Mm-hmm. So as we've talked about a few times here, you co-authored a book called It's Personal with Reggie Joyner and Virginia Ward. And so would you mind just telling us kind of, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but just kind of the premise behind the book and what, like, was there something that prompted this book to get written? Yeah, I mean, there was a late night meeting uh, at the condo where we work. We work at this, uh, you know, I don't know, work office location, and Virginia Ward was in town. We were talking through different ideas. Really, the idea for the book was birthed out of the same idea of conference, conference theme, and the book all kind of came to light that night when we were talking about um, a lot of the things that we've mentioned today on the podcast um, about the importance of relationships, and and even in the original questions you had about how we have safe places to have conversations about difficult issues. We were talking about a lot of that when we were kind of there together. Um, For me, I kind of go back to a quote from one of my favorite movies, which is you've got mail, which I don't know what that says about me, but (laughs) there's this scene in the movie where, you know, he's put her out of business and comes over to her apartment. If you've seen it and he says, it's not personal, it's business. And she kind of, you know, gives the lines that, you know, it's a turning point in their relationship. She says, what's so wrong with being personal? I mean, shouldn't everything you do begin by being personal? And what does it actually mean for us to prioritize humanity and being personal with each other? I think when we lose sight of our own humanity, when we lose sight of Um, maybe the humanity around a cause and we become so cause focused that we forget that there's real people at stake on both sides of that cause. Or maybe we forget uh, the humanity of someone else in our passion to go after some kind of thing that that's where we depersonalize 
And we could be right all day long and still not have a good approach to whatever we're trying to accomplish. And so this was a call back to say, you know, again, kind of now more than ever, what if we went back to reprioritizing this dignity and respect for each other and for our humanity by making it personal? It's really hard to be angry and outraged at a person that you know that you sit face to face with. Um, the number of leaders who I would, I mean, like in my gut, vehemently, you know, oppose online when they make a statement, you know, that I go, oh, I mean, there's just something inside me that just, ah, you know. But if I sit across from them at a table and I'm looking at them eye to eye and talking about our families and then we were to discuss that issue, it just sounds different. I mean, mm-hmm. there's that anger reaction that kind of melts away and you go, okay, no, there's a person here and we can dialogue with respect with each other and maybe we both have something to learn. Mm-hmm. Why do you think making a personal changes things so drastically? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, it's just so much easier to be angry at someone you don't know and to forget that they're somebody's daughter, somebody's son, you know, somebody's mother and go, oh, okay, that's right. They're, they're still human. They still hurt like me. Um, a statement I might be tempted to say about them still hurts them. Um, they still have feelings and emotions. And um, I think we also overassume somebody's intent in the conversation as well. We, we hear what somebody says and we not only assume we think we know what they meant, but we think we might know their motive. And I think where we get it wrong is oftentimes our interpretation of someone else's motive. And when we make it personal, we begin to go, wait, I didn't realize that this was your family background, or I didn't realize that that was what you know, that this was a trigger for you for some reason, or I didn't realize this piece of your story um, and how that affected you specifically. So there's just elements and layers to getting to know a person that gives you a different kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. What's a couple of things that people can start to do to make, make people more personable in their lives? So we, in the book, we came up with five questions that everybody should ask to do just that. Um, one of those was, do you know my name? Um, which was a really fun chapter to work on because it sounds so shallow. It sounds so basic. And, um, and yet we think it matters not only that you, um, know somebody's name and remember somebody's name, but that you also know how to pronounce that name correctly and what that communicates, especially as we're communicating maybe, um, across, you know, ethnicities are different, but there's a way in which you say someone's name that communicates respect. And so that would be one way to make it personal is literally just to start by knowing somebody's name. Um, Then we want to know, we want to challenge leaders to say, do you know where uh, that person lives? And that could mean physically where they live, what neighborhood do they live in? What house do they live in? What is their room and their context look like on a day-to-day basis? And that can be beyond just physical, but also emotional Um, so many stories of leaders that would go, once I knew where they lived, it changed the way I understood their response, you know, to conversations, their forward. Mm -hmm. So do you know my name? Do you know where I live? Do you know what I've done? That we think that everybody needs somebody who knows the answer to the question, do you know what I've done? Especially if we're trying to communicate as a church, a message of forgiveness and hope. You know, so many teenagers, uh, young adolescents are going, well, I hear you talk about forgiveness, but you don't know what I'm holding that I need to be forgiven from. And it would probably change, you know, the way that you talk about this if you actually knew the rock that I was carrying. And everybody doesn't need for everybody to know what they've done, right? I mean, that's maybe unnecessary, mm-hmm. but everybody needs somebody who knows the answer to that question. Um, do you know what I can do? Every kid, every teenager, everybody needs somebody who can say, I see your potential. I see what you're capable of. I see what you're uh, able to do. And do you know what I like? Um, Do you know what I'm interested in? And what kind of, you know, what jokes make me laugh or what movies do I really enjoy watching? And those kind of interests communicate something about us. As we become people who understand the answers to those five questions about others, that's sort of the, the center of how to become more personal. Uh, with the people around us and specifically with those who, you know, we may be uh, having an inner, inner circle. 
So before we move on to the questions that we ask everybody, is there anything else about the message, it's personal, that you'd like to talk about? I think one other thought um, that we didn't write in the book that doesn't um, necessarily, it doesn't pertain to the book, but I would say specifically for church leaders when it comes to being personal, is that we forget how personal it is to our community, whether we know these answers or don't. Um, and this goes back to another reason that kind of birthed this idea was a story that Danielle Strickland told, who's a good friend of ours. She's spoken at conference um, a few times. And she told us the story of um, a girl in foster care who lived in a community and she hated the church. And her stories of why were just simply that she was in a home where she was being abused. There was a lot of dark stuff going on in her world. And she walked to school every day. And when she walked to school every day, she walked past a church. They were right there in the community. She saw their building. She knew they were physically present. She knew what they were supposed to be about. And the fact that they didn't know her and didn't know her story was causing her hurt that she carried the rest of her life to go, they don't know, they don't care about me, and here I am, this is what I'm going through. And it was the abandonment of the church that felt as personal to her as anything else. And so for church leaders, again, we didn't write this book necessarily to church leaders, it's more to kind of anybody and everybody, mm -hmm. um, but there is a piece of this message that's important to say, because we're all mission-driven and mission-focused, it's so easy for us to believe that what we do is the most important work on the planet because we all believe that it is. And over time that turns us into a self-focused organization because we know how important what we do is. But if we become overly self-focused, we forget to make it personal to our community and that the way we become personal with our community in the local school, at the soccer game, you know, in the you know, family community centers or whatever it is that's going on in your community, the way we're present and personal and in and among all the humans around us, right? That that really matters. And it's personal whether we make it personal or not. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, a couple of questions uh, before we let you go. What's one thing that is helping you either personally or professionally right now? Um, probably just, uh, like I said earlier, self-reflection. Um, Every day brings some new challenges uh, with my job or my family or whatever, and just pausing at the end of the day to go, what am I learning? What do I need to do better? Um, and being brutally honest with mm -hmm. myself in those conversations and in those self-reflections to take full responsibility for what went right, what went wrong is truly my own. Mm -hmm. So does that look like journaling it out? Like, are those specific questions that you ask yourself or is it just kind of like, what does that look like? Um, part of that's just questions, you know, mentally and then writing notes somewhere on my phone. If it's something that I know I really need to remember, um, it's not a rigorous set of questions, but I think it is an important practice just to look back across the day. Where was, you know, you know where was something that I know I need to take full responsibility for and either go make it right or learn to do better next time or um i don't, I don't know yeah mm -hmm. what advice would you give to someone who's eager to learn <laughs> if you want to learn you will <laughs> I mean, you you can't not learn oh goodness there's so many you can know a lot of information and still not learn too I think sometimes it's interesting. Um, you can read a lot of books and consume a lot of information and still not actually take it in and learn it and apply it to your life and let it change you. And so if you're really willing to allow yourself to be changed and to change your mind and to go, I thought this way, but I was wrong. Um, then you're, you can learn all the, you can read all the words in the world, you can read all the websites, you can follow all the people online and still not really be a learner. But if you want to be a learner, you will be, and you'll learn from everybody you meet. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give, or sorry, I already asked that question. If you could have everyone learn one thing, what would it be? I would say kindness. Is that, does that sound too shallow? No. <laughs> I, I would say kindness. I just think we can all get a little bit more kind 
in our words and our approach to each other. And, um, you know, kindness doesn't have to be soft or inauthentic to who we are, but there's a true and authentic, gritty, resolved kind of kindness toward each other that I think is going to be important as we enter into, like you started the conversation, some of the harder conversations that we're having as a culture, kindness matters. Mm-hmm. Who are some of your favorite people to learn from right now? Uh, well, I learned from my kids a lot. <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever lived in a house with your own children, they're unashamed to point out all your faults and uh, all the ways that you So I learned from them a lot. I learned from the orange staff a lot because I spend a lot of time with our staff. I'm constantly learning from them. I learn from other ministry leaders in conversations who are on the front lines with kids and teenagers and encountering new scenarios with families and students every day. And the, those stories reframe the way that we think. A lot of, I learn best through stories. So mm-hmm. stories from our staff, stories from leaders and, uh, you know, direct jabs from my own kids. <laughs> what are um, either uh, a book or a podcast that has radically changed how you thought recently? Hmm. Uh, when I was working on It's Personal, one of the books that I went back to was Daring Greatly from Brene Brown. And that's a book that I don't think I could read once as an individual. I feel like I could honestly meditate on that one (laughs) daily again and again and again. I go back to it and go, I just want those signposts for, you know, living plastered on my wall Mm because I just need to be reminded over and over and over again. So that, that book definitely radically changed for me a lot of things I learned. Have you read Dare to Lead yet by Brene Brown? I haven't, but I have it on the shelf and I want to. Oh <laughs> I haven't had goodness. a chance yet. It yeah. is amazing. Yes. Yeah. It's like all of her books into one. Yeah. So that might and, push me over the edge. I need to go find <laughs> time to read it. I really do. Uh, and then finally, what are you learning right now? Hmm. What am I learning right now? There's a, sorry, I should have known the answer to that faster. One thing I think I'm learning right now Um, and it may be season of life, is how to be a little bit more brave in some areas. Um, I feel more responsible than I can remember feeling to be a little more brave than I can remember um, in the past, in past years. And part of that might have to do with some of the political climate that you were referencing or the heated nature of some debates and some perspective sharing that I think we're maybe lacking in culture. Um, I do feel like I'm learning how to be both kind and also um, as brave and authentic as I know how to be. Um, And that is, that's a scary lesson to try to be working through. Yeah. What, what's helped you do that? Because I find myself in a similar situation. Mm. Um, feeling just a weight of personal responsibility and situations that I'll look up and go, wow, uh, my failure to be brave cost somebody else. And I need to, uh, do that with a little bit. Um, I I need to feel the weight of that a little bit more than maybe I have in the past. Um, given the position where I sit in an organization, there's challenges as well, because, uh, an organization is like one human made up of many humans. (laughs) And so uh, there's a responsibility and a duty to each other that is also an important piece of kind of trying to work through what that really means and what that really looks like. But, um, 
you know, it feels like we need each other's stories and we need for each other to share those stories with as much honesty and authenticity and kindness as we possibly can, um, all for the sake of each other. I do think uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said it best. We are caught up in this web uh, of mutual destiny, right? When he wrote letter from a Birmingham jail that what affects one person affects all of us collectively more than we realize. And so as individuals, we do carry a heavy responsibility to the whole to bring our full selves to the table. And it's hard to always know how to do that well. Mm-hmm. Well, Kristen, I know people are going to want to continue to learn from you, whether that be on Instagram or social media, or even just pick up the book. It's personal too. Where's the best place for them to go to do those things? Uh, you can, yeah, follow my Instagram. It's like underscore Kristen underscore Ivy, which is weird because I guess that name was already taken, but you could type in my name. Um, KristenIvy.com is my website and uh, it's personals on Amazon or anywhere you, you know, purchase books. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the Learner's Corner today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. It's fun. Well, Kristen, thanks again for being on the podcast. And to learn more from Kristen, to continue to follow her, you can go to her website, kristenivy.com, and you can find all of her books there, um, the podcast that she's been on, I mean, really anything that she's involved with as it concerns the Rethink Group as well. Well, hey, today's been a great episode. I'm looking forward to the next episode. And thanks so much for listening today. Until next time, keep learning and keep growing.